Welcome to The Collective Tap, conversations about water. I'm your host, Taylor Bennett. Join us for this final season as our field hosts, Taz Walters and Devin Dabney, explore how we relate to water in its natural state. This season, we bring you conversations about community, wildlife, and recreation. We also speak with two members of the Miami Nation who help us understand the relationship the Native peoples cultivated with water. Today, we go beyond human uses of our waters and look at the vast community of other organisms that rely on them. Indiana is home to a rich diversity of water habitats that support everything from insects at the base of the food chain to predators like the bald eagle at the top. We talk with Amanda Smith with the Hamilton County Parks and Recreation Department and Cassie Hauswald with the Nature Conservancy. We discuss the many ways our waters support wildlife, how human activity impacts habitat, and the role policy plays in making sure we can all coexist. First, let's meet Taz and Devin. Hi. I'm Taz Walters, one of the Collective TAP's non-water expert hosts. Just like you, I have lots of questions about our water. And I'm Devin Dabney. I'm also new to the world of water, but I'm here to help ask the questions you might want answered. Our first conversation is with Amanda Smith, the Superintendent of Natural Resources and Education with the Hamilton County Parks and Recreation Department. Amanda talks with Taz and Devin about the importance of Indiana's wetlands, the role of indicator species, and the impact of how we vote. My name's Amanda Smith and I work for Hamilton County Parks Department. I serve as the Superintendent of Natural Resources and Education. So what does your role as Superintendent of Natural Education encompass? Um, well, I do a variety of different things. Most of my job is working with the public, both school kids and really people of all ages, grandparents to young uh, children. I'm really trying to kind of get them excited about Indiana nature, our habitat, the community that we have um, ecologically, and then with exhibits and hands-on activities and reinforcements and things, and then also really enjoy helping the department, our parks department, make as informed ecological decisions related to our parks uh, as possible. So trying to balance that recreation and stewardship model that we need to kind of try to strike a a good medium ground with. We've been having lots of conversations around water, you know, manufacturing, how people use it, but we really want to get a sense of how our use of water impacts wildlife in Indiana. But first, I just want to know, what about Indiana's habitats is unique or special? Oh, I love that question. Um, We tend to, you know, not knowing exactly how many of the the listeners, um, and you guys grew up in the state, but Indiana is generally not very well known to be kind of this you know, ecological haven. Um, and that's one of the narratives that I try to kind of combat all the time. That it's not a boring state ecologically. And hopefully the more people understand that, the more they'll be motivated to protect it in, in other ways. But Indiana, when you look at it, is um, is full of what we call ecotones or kind of edges of habitats. Statewide, you know, you've got the Great Lakes up north, you have the swamps of the south um, that kind of start in the boot uh, shoe, or at least part of it. Indiana. You have the the eastern seaboard that dissipates and you have the prairies that start in the west. So Indiana is full of ecotones or regions and where you have the highest diversity is where those edges meet up. And Indiana is full of edges. We're the crossroads of America and most of the kids kind of know that because of our interstate system is the the picture that they're given. But the first interstates were the rivers um, that our early indigenous folks were, were here using and we were the crossroads of America, I think, um, you know, well before any 
asphalt was put down. Um, certainly the, the railroads show that, but then before that, the rivers did that and really provided that, that highway. And I believe that people have always been in Indiana, um, in Indiana being land of the Indians because of the, the richness of resources. So it is a great state to, to kind of embrace in that way. Indiana used to be mostly wetland too, right? Is that right? Yeah, I think I read that about 35% of Indiana or so was wetland um, pre, you know, pre-settlement essentially. Of the 50 states, um, we are the fourth in regards to its loss of wetland acreage. So uh, very wet state, you know, Kankakee and other places were, were very wet. Um, but Indiana, both the riparian corridor, but then also those isolated wetlands were a big part of, of the acreage in Indiana before it became a state. Can you talk about the role that wetlands play? Yes, um, they are, I, I think we have undervalued them for generations, first off decades and, and um, centuries now. Wetlands are really the sponges of, of the earth. So they essentially will pull in the water that comes down in rain events. The hydrology of the state is much different than it was pre-contact. Um, I had heard once in a presentation that really flash floods were not something that people were really that used to because pre-settlement and pre-so much, you know, impervious pavement, when we would have large rain events, um, that rain would go to the groundwater and it would swell the rivers later. Um, so you had a couple days before the floods really kind of inundated. So this flash flood, you know, kind of model that we live with now was not the case back then because the, the wetlands really were soaking in all that water and then filling the aquifers and then that could overflow the rivers. So our wetlands, though, they say uh, one-third of all of the endangered species in the United States is somehow, um, over one-third, is somehow dependent on a wetland. They are nutrients. They, they sequester carbon. They are, you know, just a wonderful resource for the wildlife. They really are kind of the nurseries for so many different species. And, and um, everything is reliant on water, but there's just many, many species that really have to have some part of their lifespan near water or in the water. That leads us right into talking about wildlife. Yeah. Can you tell us about some interesting species, especially those who are relying on our waterways? Um, it's really, you know, every taxa of wildlife has, um, there's definitely going to be some star of wetlands um, for sure. I, I think the big, bold species, we were here at a place that is hosting an osprey that is flying by. And so you have your kind of apex predators. Many of them are reliant on water of some sort. Eagles, of course, the American eagle, being one that is frequently seen around rivers and, and open water. And then even down to insects. I mean, certainly insects, aside from the native plants that, that is around, are, are, are part of a wetland or a river system. Your insects really are, are kind of the, that base level uh, food chain or web, I guess, source of, of protein for everything else above it. And so and insects rarely get a lot of attention. And when they do, it's typically mosquitoes or, you know, kind of pesty sort of things. You know, there's moths and crane flies and, you know, even lightning bugs to some, not necessarily a wetland species, but certainly need a, a moist environment in order to make it to that adult firefly that we love seeing. You know, I love heron. People love heron, green heron. That's a smaller heron. So the great blue heron is also obviously a, a species we see a lot. Um, but the green heron is great. And then even our small warblers, when we're talking about birds, 
rely on them. The river otter is a great species too, and one that we can really celebrate in Indiana that's been um, reintroduced and coming back, uh, which is also super great. So you've got you've got mammals and insects, and I'm missing all kind. Oh, of course, no reptiles and amphibians too. I mean, gosh, uh, amphibians being an em- environmental indicating species, um, since they do spend part of their life, depending on the species, in the wetland um, or in the water. Many of them don't stay in the water as adults, but they they will sometimes move back and forth. Our reptiles too. So again, um, a group of ins- a group of animals that doesn't always get the attention or love that they should. Many of those species are endangered, and then I think our most endangered species in Indiana, just in regards to numbers, are our mussels, our freshwater mussels. It's a group of animal I've not really studied too much about, um, and I'm not a big fish person in regards to going out and fishing, but I certainly appreciate their role as the osprey flies by. You know, um, that's what they're looking to do. So gosh, there's just so many things that that rely on the water. You mentioned the phrase an indicator species. Can you explain what that means? Sure. An indicator species would be a species that, for instance, we could kind of focus maybe on a frog. These are vulnerable species. So when there is a problem in the, in the environment, they are generally the first to show issue. Um, show decline or show other um, shifting of habitats or populations in some cases, most cases. But there are many types of indicator species. Butterflies are another great example of an indicator species. So they're generally the most vulnerable just based on their habitat. And so those are the ones that when you start seeing decline, which we do, I think um, 41% of our amphibians are now in decline, which is an indication that we have we have some major issues. Uh, and water would be a great place to start looking at that. We've talked some about historically how habitats in Indiana have changed um, and how things have declined. How does our use of water as people affect wildlife now? Well, I'd say that there are some people that are naturally drawn to water. They spend the money to live near it or on it. They want to be able to see it. There's certainly a lot of recreation that takes place um, along water. Industry uses water in other ways, sometimes as a a vehicle to get rid of things, and and that's luckily a little bit better regulated now, but we still see evidence of that happening um, at time with you know, non-point and points uh, pollution and things that are happening. We tend to love our water too much, um, and that's that's been an issue over time. I know f- from a park perspective, my role is to try to balance the interest and need for people to see the water, be around the water, but then also to protect the water. So I know one thing is a lot of times we end up uh, removing vegetation around the water so we have a clear line of sight. That's not good for the water. It's not good for the wildlife. Um, And it actually attracts some of the things that a lot of people get more irritated about, like Canada geese in large numbers or muskrats or some of these other issues that people have um, when they when they like the water, but they don't like everything associated with the water. So helping people and homeowners actually in particular understand how our relationship with water needs to be balanced is a big part of what I do um, because um, there will be some nuisances if you want to live near or you know recreate around the water. There are certainly things that um, may start to get on our nerves a little bit. Yeah, you've made a really interesting point about how we simultaneously love our water and don't take care of our water yes. at the same in one fell swoop, right? <laughs> 
Um, I never really thought about it that way, but that's really interesting. We're drawn to water. Um, you know, when you look at the White River, it just, I'm going to try to remember the statistic, but well over 30% of, I think, people along the White River watershed live near the water or within the area. So we're drawn to water. And in some cases, we don't necessarily, I mean, when you get on the White River, for instance, you kind of forget that it's even, you're like, you're like this is amazing. Um, it, you know, most of our river still has a pretty good riparian corridor, so it's a little hard if you're driving through Indianapolis to really even know that you're near the White River, and that's okay. Uh, I really hesitate to say that we should open up the river so we can better appreciate it. It needs to be protected, and and, and um, it needs to have that buffer um, because those that that whole corridor is so important both for us for our own health but also for wildlife it provides a corridor for wildlife that has really had more protection than a lot of our forests and in, in other places so you've mentioned a couple of times the challenge of getting people to understand you know the relationship and the balance and embracing other species that may not be as pretty but have value as an educator how do you address that challenge of getting people to appreciate the not-so-loved parts of right. water? That's a really good question. Um, most of what I first do is try to implore people to actually really deep dive into what's causing an issue. You know, sometimes it's a child just saying, oh, I hate ducks, you know, or whatever it might be. <laughs> um, and, and we can deal with that on one end, but with a homeowner who's making real decisions that could impact um, not only them, but also you know, the water's connected, we're connected. Decisions we make, it could impact the Gulf of Mexico because we're all on the water um, and we all share this resource. So if they're looking to harm or to modify it, understand it first. Know what you're up against. Know what their habits are. Canada geese, for instance, um, this is a manufactured issue that people have really ended up dealing with. There's very simple solutions that can decline or uh, bring a, a reduction in the amount of geese that might be in a given area. Um, pretty easy things that are actually good in a lot of other ways, for instance, or vegetation. We tend to mow right to the water line because again, we love seeing the water line. We love just looking out and seeing water. Allowing some buffers, um, vegetation buffers, allowing things to grow up near the water is part of that. Also, I tried to let people know that I would recommend um, not necessarily always taking advice from people who profit from the answer they give you. Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> revolutionary, right? But um, we're a lot of times working with pest control companies and other places that recommend uh, treatments that are not only, in my opinion, not effective. Um, mosquito control, for instance, is a really good example of this that can really hurt the water. It can hurt the wildlife. It can hurt, it's hurting the cardinals that you're bringing to your feeders because they're actually eating those insects. Get get advice from other folks that are not just taking your money um, or want to take your money. There's fear involved. There's a lot of other issues at play that we as humans have as, as emotions. Depending on your community, you have folks like me who are more than happy to give you an alternative view and also an accurate identification um, before we really start kind of just you know, kill it with fire kind of mentality, which I get all the time um, from folks that just, they'll kill it first, then they'll ask questions. So those are some of my two pieces of advice. Know what you're doing first, know what the problem really is, what the species is, and then get, get alternative 
um, advice from someone who, who may have a little bit better knowledge. We also need to modify our ideas of what pretty is and what is what is attractive. I think slowly as a society, we're moving away from the manicured grass kind of look of everything. That's taking some time. I'm hoping, I, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, I'm hoping our millennials and our Gen Zs um, really take this and run um, and, and stop um, doing some of these destructive practices that, and I'll say, I know a lot of boomers that are doing it too and doing the, it the right way um, and are starting to modify our choices. And I just keep pushing that. When you're looking at all of this complex picture of environmental challenges, people coming into conflict with wildlife, wildlife being in conflict with humans, it can sometimes feel a little bit uh, grim. Yeah. <laughs> but what does the future of Indiana's water and wildlife communities look like? Is there hope there? I think there's always hope. I definitely think so. I think SB 389 was a really hard thing uh, for those of us that you know work in this field. I'm hopeful that pendulum will shift. Um, that's definitely part of it. But I think what we're seeing now is a welling of just local people that will make that that change. But industry and special interests still are a big seat at the table. I, you know, I work with a lot of people within the Parks Department, just people that come by and you know we're watching people walk by. We have a lot of people who are using our parks that are passively using our parks. So they're coming and walking dogs, going bird watching, photography. Those of us that are passively using parks need to actively advocate for parks instead of just kind of coming in, parking the car, going, oh, I wish they wouldn't do that. Oh, they shouldn't have done that. We have a lot of educated folks that know, you know kind of some different ways to do it. So I would implore them to speak up um, more, again, in, in many different areas. But we're seeing local government or local movements at least helping with that. Unfortunately, I think though, related to your question, I think we're gonna have to see a few things. Uh, I think it'll get a little bit worse before it gets better. I think we'll see some species decline. I think we may see some even extinctions potentially within our lifetimes. I think much like the bald eagle, did in the 60s and 70s, which we were able, you know, pats on the back, working with multitude of different legislators and scientists and, you know, lawmakers and farmers. We were able to make some really important changes that quickly reversed it. So I, you know, the fact that we can see an osprey, we might see a bald eagle just sitting here in an hour, is a triumph because 30 years ago that was impossible. To that, I would just say that, um, you know, we unfortunately we may have to lose a few things before we really get a better idea of what impact we can have both negatively but then positively. Can you explain what SB 389 is? Yes. So it was, and I probably will get this a little botched because um, it's been a good year now, but essentially um, this was a state bill that passed that deregulated the protections that many isolated wetlands have in the state. So now, and I think it was Nature Conservancy that estimated that the passing of that bill could imperil about 80% of the wetlands in Indiana. It's just shocking. So before that bill, if I, as a homeowner, wanted to build on a, you know, wetland that was designated by, you know, IDEM and, and the state and, and some other uh, federal organizations, 
if I wanted to do that, um, I could, but I would pay a lot because I would be impacting the wetland for the community, for the whole. And I, I may, and this happened a lot, the road crews would come in and they would possibly impact the wetland. So they would then have to put money towards conservation in other places and, rep- and actually put in different, maybe a mitigated wetland um, in another area, um, maybe three or four times the size that they impacted. In many cases, that requirement's gone now. So you can, as a farmer, as a homeowner, as a, you know, as a target super center, come in and build on a wetland without any really repercussions related to that. So as a park uh, employee, this is actually one of the ways that we procured parks for the public too. Um, So many of the, the parks that we have were obtained through mitigated wetland money and then open to the public and then therefore um, protected and also provided for the for the public. This was something that was happening federally, um, and then Indiana uh, was able to push towards that. Our current administration federally has been working towards reversing some of that, but that will take quite some time to change, I think, in Indiana. Totally my opinion, but this definitely, it impacted special interests in a better way, certainly, than it did the, the community as a whole. Is there anything that individuals can do to help protect our water resources and our wetlands? Uh, come time when we go to cast a vote, there's a lot of concerns that we have, obviously. I'm a kid of the 80s, and um, the environment has always been maybe top 10 of people's list, but never top five. I think that's changing finally. Um, So I would love to see people vote for the environment ahead of maybe some other things. Just be a student your whole life about this. I think that's really part of it too. Just continue to learn and we just need to have that voice. We just need to keep reminding people that we, we want this, we expect this. Next, Cassie Hauswald is a freshwater ecologist with the Indiana chapter of the Nature Conservancy. Cassie talks about Indiana's unique water wildlife and the work being done to protect them. A quick note, Taz wasn't able to be with us for this interview, so you'll only hear Devin talking with Cassie. My name is Cassie Hauswald. I'm a freshwater ecologist for the Nature Conservancy in Indiana. Wow. Um, freshwater ecologist. What is that? <laughs> That's a great question. I, I think um, about the, the ecology of, of our rivers and streams, uh, not so much our lakes. Um, and so I'm thinking about all of the building blocks that go into um, our watery environments. And uh, the Nature Conservancy Maybe it's a self-explanatory title, but could you just explain what what it is? The Nature Conservancy is a nonprofit conservation organization, international. We work in many countries um, all over the world, but we have about 60 staff in Indiana. The Nature Conservancy works to conserve the lands and waters on which all life depends. So in my job, I'm thinking about those watery things that live in the water, but that definition also includes people. Yeah, and that's great because one of the things that we're focused on, which I wanted to talk to you about today, is how wildlife interfaces with water. What are some of the water sources that wildlife use? So wildlife, and I I do come at this question from the perspective of the things that are living in the water. And so, you know, we have fish and in particular freshwater mussels that live in flowing water in our rivers and creeks and and streams. Um, And then we have things that also live in the wetlands, you know, the water that's a little more ephemeral or or doesn't last all year uh, on the landscape. And then we have lakes, uh, of course, in Indiana that also have their own host of of species. And so um, in particular, 
freshwater mussels. They are kind of the living rocks of our stream systems. They're the base of kind of the food web that's that's going on, and they're my um, they're my passion. So they really tell me a lot about what's going on in the water when I see the different species or, or lack thereof. That's awesome. And correct me if I'm wrong, but are mussels an indicator species then? Yes, mussels are, bi- that's exactly what I call them, bioindicators. So they're the thing that to me is a lot more exciting. You know, you can say, oh, we have, you know, really high oxygen levels in this water. Or you can say, we have 25 different species of mussels in this water. Which one excites you more? It's, it's that there's a, a diversity of life there. And so that that is what a bioindicator is. It's a living indicator of water quality and of, of a good habitat. You talked a little bit about the different types of water habitats and uh, wetlands are a huge thing in Indiana. What makes wetlands unique or different than other habitats? So wetlands are unique in that they are, um, as I said, they're ephemeral. Wetlands aren't necessarily full of water all year long. And so wetlands tend to fill up when we have, you know, a big rain event. And when do you think of the rains? You think of the rains as late winter and early spring. So in the springtime is when we get a lot of amphibians. And those things are using those wetlands when they're wet. Their larvae are growing really quickly. There's lots of food in there. And then by the summer, those places go dry. And so that's the time of year when all those uh, frogs and toads are out hopping around. They're no longer needing water to, to survive. They, of course, drink water still, but they don't have to have that wetland to survive. So it's an ephemeral habitat that kind of comes and goes with the cycle of water. As an ecologist, you've got to know all sorts of species. Uh, I'm just curious on a personal note what your, some of your favorites are. My favorite, I'll, I'll start with my favorite um, freshwater mussel, which is an elephant ear. It's the animal that I did my master's research on. I did that because the elephant ear was one of the most abundant species in the Blue River, but there were no baby mussels of that species, of the elephant ear. And so that's kind of like going into a kindergarten classroom and not seeing any children. That's concerning uh, when you just have an adult population. And so I wanted to understand what was the missing link because it didn't appear to be water quality. There were plenty of mussels. There just weren't young ones. Freshwater mussels are the part of the reason that they fascinate me is that they're parasites when they're in their larval form. Mussels have different fish that they attract to carry their larvae around and move them around in the stream. And so this particular mussel doesn't have its fish host that lives in the Ohio River Basin in great numbers any longer. That's a skipjack herring. And so if the fish isn't there, then the mussel isn't there. And so that then sort of drives thinking about what is it that would would help the skipjack to come back, which is altering how dams are operated on the Ohio River and the Mississippi River system. Yeah, that's something that's come up multiple times of just how damming up, even in Indiana, how damming up the river has affected the mussel population and their ability to migrate. How does our relationship to the water as people impact wildlife's use of water? Well, people impact water in many ways that they don't even think about. So one of the first um, concepts that you, you talk to people about, and I know you've done that, this on your podcast, is uh, to talk about what a watershed is and where, you know, water drains somewhere. Where does it go? Where does the water that leaves your cup go? When Indiana was not settled, we had water that was falling on a prairie or water that was falling on a forest. And now we have water that's falling on a parking lot or falling on a, a roof. And where you know that water might get to a stream faster and it might pick up some 
dirt along the way, some oil from our cars that's leaking, some you know brake fluid, some soil, some fertilizer. And so we all have something to do with, with how the water returns to the stream. And we have choices about how to make that better or worse based on our daily habits. How's all of those factors changed the way wildlife are here in Indiana? We certainly have species that are extinct. They're gone. Um, we don't want to see that happen, of course. Um, but we really have to look at the populations that we still have and how are they faring? Are they trending up? Or are they trending down? And I find across the state, it's, it varies. That there's so many nuances to this. So hellbenders are a good example of a species that's really been impacted by how we use our land. Mm -hmm. And when you think about water, you have to think about land because they interact and they're not really different. Hellbender salamanders once occurred in all of the tributary streams to the Ohio River that occur in Indiana. And of course they have a broader range than just Indiana, but we're, th we're thinking about Indiana today. And so the Blue River is the only river in Indiana where hellbenders still occur. They still persist in the Blue River, even though their numbers have declined, even in that stream system. And so then you start looking at, well, why have they disappeared? What, what's, what's been the cause of that? And hellbenders require clear water. They want to be able to see. They need to live under large limestone slabs and uh, lay their eggs under there. And so we have a lot of streams in Indiana where you can no longer find the rocks. They're buried by sediment. And that's a result of how we use our land. We've cleared the land to, to farm and to have our homes and to have our you know built environment. And we don't have sometimes measures in place to slow that water down. And if anything, Indiana's seeing it's increased flows, increased water runoff because we're, we're getting more rain and we have a lot more impervious surface. And so definitely that species has been impacted. That's a really good example of how it isn't always dumping toxic waste, right? Like even just an increase in velocity has an effect on certain species. These are just such complex species and systems that have existed forever. And yeah, just even the slightest change has a huge impact. As an ecologist, do you spend a lot of time talking with or interacting with people that don't know as much or are a little bit more new to the, these ideas that we're talking about? Absolutely. That's part of my mission is to get people excited about what lives in our rivers and streams. Indiana is uh, quite, the Wabash Basin is quite diverse as, as regards freshwater mussels. Again, I'm sorry, I keep going back to freshwater no, mussels, I, but, they, but I love them. No, um, so this is my, my chance to give them a shameless plug. But I, I do a lot of presentations to, um, in particular, college, you know, uh, conservation biology classes. So kind of preaching to the choir. But I also am participating in the Indiana Humanities Environmental Speakers Bureau. And so I get invited by civic organizations to come and speak with their communities about our rivers in Indiana and sort of um, how those rivers are, are trending, again, through the lens of freshwater mussels and their, their life history. I find that when you actually kind of dig deep into a topic, People are interested. There's nobody that says, I want to go kill freshwater mussels today. Right. No one says, I want to go kill, you know, smallmouth bass today. They, they might want to fish for a few and, and fry them up. And that's great. I, I support that. You know, we, we want more of that uh, ability in our waters. But when you talk to people about how complex these things are and how our actions, you know, have reactions, positive or negative, because people have done good things for, for these species too. It isn't all a negative story for sure. And so, um, um, everyone, it, it seems to me, can be turned on to this when they see the passion that's in, in a person like myself. Yeah. I get a little excited and my voice starts ramping up when I start <laughs> talking about muscles. Yeah, that's great, though. I mean, you just said it, that the passion is like very 
palpable and it's infectious. When you're talking to people about these things and trying to get them to understand, how do you get over that initial hump of understanding or trying to get people to see these different issues that are really complex and just take so much knowledge? Oh, that's a really good question, Devin. You know, when I have the privilege of being able to show someone some pictures, uh, we, we kind of start with the macro view of, you know, what a watershed is. Then we drill down to maybe where we're sitting that day. Then you sort of share the, the variety of resources that we have, the variety of, of wildlife from the fish that live in the water to the bats that are you know, using the corridor, to the rare plants that are growing you know, on the river bank and that are maintained by river processes. And so you, you, you kind of pull them in with that, and then you pivot to here are some issues and why we're seeing the trends that we're seeing. That's definitely not gonna change the world, but it is gonna change a few minds and hearts. How do you get people to love species that aren't as like pretty, for lack of a better word? Like it's really easy to get people to care about dogs, you know, something the, like the that. The panda or the tiger yeah. or the eagle. But yeah. not like a, no one likes snakes. Uh, but how do you how do you get people to get past that? Well, I don't know if I have an answer for how you get people past liking a snake or a bat or a wood rat. You know, that's sort of the, the joke in Indiana is that the things that we have that are most special and most rare aren't necessarily the, you know, poster child for mm -hmm. conservation. And yet there are people like myself, and hopefully by the end of this interview, and I don't think that's a stretch to say, Devin, that, you know, by the end of this interview, you're going to really want to look up, what is an elephant ear muscle? Oh, I will. And so it's the person to person, you know, I care about this thing and I'm not such a bad person and maybe I ought to look into that. And maybe along the way, then I impart you know, something that, some action you can take, um, which also is people want to feel like they are doing something to help. And so sometimes that's a hard question. Like, how do you get somebody to actually change their behavior? And that's, that's definitely hard, but there is something in my power. And that's, if that's just going home and actually figuring out where does my water come from and what species live in the water that's my drinking water source? Or where does the water that's leaving my you know, home or apartment, where does it go? And is it getting there faster than it should? And so it just opens up these conversations that are a little more nuanced and, as you point out, a little difficult. But I also want to make the point that um, our river corridors are really important for a couple of reasons. One, um, if you have a corridor, it means you have shade that's over your stream, which lowers the temperature and increases the level of oxygen, which really facilitates a lot of the species that we're talking about today. But those corridors, they also are migratory corridors for birds like our uh, migrating warblers and bats. So bats are another really fascinating creature, not real cute. Again, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but they use those corridors because they're open and they can detect them all. And of course, we know we have a lot of bugs that emerge from our waters in the summer when they're foraging. So those, those corridors work in that way. And those corridors also can be people corridors. So we know that a lot of our trails are, you know, along, along the river's edge. It's places that flood sometimes, and sometimes you can't walk there because it's flooded. And that's a good use of that property, actually. Mm -hmm. So I love to think of our rivers as migratory corridors for all of these species. Our podcast has been collaborating with Metazoa Brewing. Uh, they're helping us get the word out. And one of the cool things that they're doing that I'm excited about is they're brewing this beer. And it's called the Mud Puppy Hazy IPA. 
But I'm excited I about it too. <laughs> are you? I'm excited about the hazy IPA part, but I don't know what a mud puppy is. Can you tell me something about it? Sure. The mud puppy is a, an aquatic salamander, fully aquatic, lives in the water all the all year long, all the time, and it's about a foot long. Um, so that's a pretty good sized salamander. They are distinct from the hellbender salamander. They are smaller than the hellbender. The hellbender is about two feet long. But mud puppies are are a, a little more cylindrical than than flat. Mud puppies have external gills, so that's one really you know clear distinction. When you see something that has these red gills that are on the outside of the body, uh, that's that's a mud puppy, and they they live in you know a little bit deeper water. They can be found in our lakes, um, but also in our streams. But again in the deeper parts of our streams, they like clear water for laying their eggs. And so we have seen declines in the population, Indiana's population over time because our waters are kind of turbid, muddy, full to sediment. And so uh, they want to lay their eggs on the bottom of rocks, on the bottom of logs. And one really cool thing about mud puffies is that they are a host for the salamander mussel. So that's the only known host for salamander mussel is the mud puppy. And so if you lose the mud puppy, you lose that freshwater mussel. And to find that mussel, you tend to go, like have to reach your hands like kind of under rock ledges and up under stream banks, which is a little unnerving, but really cool because the mussel is not gonna drop off of the salamander in a place that the salamander doesn't live. And we know they love to live up under the banks. And so that's where the mussel is found. So that's a really cool uh, relationship and fascinating bit about the mud puppy. That's awesome. Yeah, I and I also did not know that salamanders could get that big. Like when I picture salamander, <laughs> I picture the kind that, yeah, you could just yeah. like hold in your hand. And yeah, there isn't a lot known about the population in Indiana precisely because they are really secretive. Um, and so it isn't surprising that you don't know, that you didn't know they could get that big. The chances of seeing one with your naked eye, you know, just being out in a kayak or something are not great. What usually tends to happen is that a, um, a fisherman will accidentally catch one or a trot line will actually accidentally uh, snag a mud puppy. So that's most of the information that's known about them. Yeah. And that, I mean, it just underlines all of the species that live in the water and use the water that we don't, we may not even see, exactly. you know, much that, less. Which is the majority of, yeah. of, this, of freshwater species. Yeah. One thing we haven't talked much about is the TNC's role as a habitat protector. Could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. The Nature Conservancy does work on, on habitat protection. And that historically has been through land protection, land purchase. And still, we definitely do a lot of that. And we're, you know, working on several projects now that involve, you know, water. But we also are working to improve water retention on the land. So working in the soil health arena, you know, promoting soil health be adopted by more farms in Indiana, which is the majority of our land use. And that being to, to hold water on the land versus flushing it down the stream really quickly and degrading the in-stream habitat. We also are working um, to promote the wetland reserve easement program. So that again is a, a program that helps um, take marginal land out of um, agricultural production land that floods year in and year out and put it back into, into trees or, or grasses so that that land can absorb floodwaters and the associated nutrients and um, sediments. So those are a couple ways that I think about how our habitat protection works. The value of water goes far beyond what comes out of our tap, what we use to grow our food or what gets consumed for electricity. Water is often at the center of what it means to be part of a community. 
Join us this season as we talk more about water and the many lives that are connected to it. That's it for now. Thank you for joining us in this conversation about water. The Collective Tap is a project of the White River Alliance, a 501c3 organization located in Indianapolis, Indiana. We are an alliance of diverse interests and organizations that work together to steward the river and its watershed. It is made possible with generous funding from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust. If you want to learn more, visit us at thecollectivetap.com or at thewhiteriveralliance.org. Produced in partnership with Absorb.